Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Aliyah Hussein, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Head. Hey, Ian. Hey, Aliyah. What's going on? Nothing. You know, I think we survived a polar vortex the last couple weeks, Mm -hmm. and um, we're in mid-February. I think this episode is going to launch on Valentine's Day. I thought maybe we could talk about some cool things we're loving right now to keep in with the theme. All right. All right. I feel that. Um, One thing I'm loving right now is the jazz scene in the UK. I got to see a couple jazz artists at the Winter Jazz Festival in New York a few weeks ago. The the scene, even in New York, it felt like very energetic and it reminded me of like the, the 90s underground hip hop scene. One thing I'm loving right now is maybe a little more basic. It's the Real Housewives series. It is like the guiltiest pleasure and um, feels like a complete contrast to work and life for me and it's the time of the year where I love like sitting down on the couch when I get home and couches you didn't you get some new ones I did get two new couches they're incredible but we have a cat or cat sitting right now and so we have to cover the couches up Um, with sheets and blankets so that they don't get scratched but they are amazing it's nice having couches I haven't had a couch since I lived in Philadelphia like 18 years ago what did you used to sit on chairs yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> love, love a good couch. Um, I'm also, well, speaking of home goods, I'm currently wedding planning. My um, partner and I got engaged. Congratulations. Thank you. In October, so a few months ago now. Um, and there are some parts of wedding planning that are actually like really fun, some that are a little more business. But one cool thing is registries. Like, that has involved looking on like websites that I don't normally uh, window shop on and like imagining like a cool vacuum cleaner or <laughs> nice, you know, utensils or um, dishware, stuff like that. So it's, um, it's kind of fun. And it's, again, a nice um, change of pace from everyday life. All right. Well, ha- happy Valentine's <laughs> Day to our listeners. And we have an exciting episode coming up. Do you want to tell us about it, Ian? Sure. Uh, I actually got to interview two of my very good friends on this episode who are also incredible writers and artists, Um, Walida Imarisha and Gabriel Teodros. Uh, Walida is the co-editor of the 2015 anthology Octavia's Brood, and Gabriel is one of the contributors um, to that anthology. Awesome. I saw Walida speak uh, when she came to the office like a few years ago. Oh, so excited right. to um, hear the episode. This is Ian Head. I'm joined by Walida Imarisha and Gabriel Teodros. Both are writers, artists, activists, and friends I've had the honor of knowing and working with for many years. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on The Activist Files. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. If you don't mind, if you could each briefly introduce yourselves. I'm Walida Marisha, and I'm a writer and educator, and I've done a few different things. I think one of the things I'm most here to talk about is I co-edited an anthology with Adrienne Marie Brown called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. My name is Gabriel Teodros. I'm a Primarily a musician, but also a teaching artist, press play DJ. I feel funny saying that next to Ian. He's something else. He's much deeper in the crates. And a, a writer. I wrote a time travel story in Octavia's Boot as well. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast and making time. Walida, first, as co-editor, what inspired you to put the project together? 
Well, uh, my co-editor Adrian and I were both working on sort of radical science fiction or engaging with fantastical writing in terms of connecting it to organizing work happening in the community, kind of doing separate work that obviously very much intersected. And then we finally decided, why don't we put together an anthology? And we got together 20 of our favorite writers and change makers and activists and just human beings and had folks write fantastical stories. We also have two essays in the collection. And the premise was very much the idea that all organizing is science fiction. So that every time we imagine a world without prisons, a world without borders, a world without oppression, that's science fiction because we've never seen that world, but we can't build what we can't imagine. And we asked some of the people that we felt like were holding those visionary futures every single day to create stories for Octavia's Brood. Awesome. One of those people was Gabriel. What was the process of recruiting Gabriel? And, and Gabriel, what was the process of writing for Octavia's Brood? Had you written a short story before? No, I had not written a short story before. I got an email, basically, from Alita in 2000. Was it 2010? Yeah, probably towards the end of that year, I think. It just made so much sense to me because I've always been into science fiction. And since me and Walida have been friends for many years, you know, we shared a, a love of all things Star Trek Deep Space Nine and <laughs> talked about X-Men and stuff like that. So she knew how much of a nerd I was already. But in the framing of Octavia's Brew, like just exactly the way she just said it, it just made so much sense. It made my life make sense in a way. This thing that I always thought was just kind of like this nerdy obsession slash hobby called science fiction was also a useful tool for imagining a different future, especially like in organizing and activism. We're acting from a place of like reaction, like we're always fighting against something, we're anti, anti, anti. It really made me look at where I put my energy, am I putting my energy into actually building the world I want to see or just fighting against something, you know? Tavis Brew changed my life before I even wrote a story. <laughs> Writing a story was very hard, and I procrastinated like hell. The first thing I did was I was in Oakland when I got the email, and I was with McLeet and Elias, which is my cousin, and then Elias uh, is also known as Burnt Face. He's this amazing Ethiopian-American producer and MC. We were just going to make a song together because it's rare that the three of us are in one place together. They're also big nerds, and Octavius Brew, the idea of it was fresh on my mind, so I said... Let's do a sci-fi song, and I want to write from the perspective of this guy who's like half human, half alien, and he's coming to Earth to be human, and the character was based on my real life. And that song was a song called E.T. Phone Home, which turned into this whole like Ethiopian hip-hop space opera that became Copper Wire. So Copper Wire was the first thing I did as a response to Octavia's Brood, and we put out a whole album, and we toured, and we did all that before I actually wrote the story still. <laughs> <laughs> So I remember asking, like, a couple years later, like, yo, is it too late? Can I still write this story? <laughs> it took some time. You know, Walida was very graceful with me. Adrian was very graceful. Like, they uh, still write a story, and that was, it was hard to write a story. Music was much easier. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. You've been yeah. writing music for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Ten albums, yep. <laughs> yeah. That's true, but ten it, albums. Yeah, a little over 10 now. We write a song. You can feel something in a moment 
sit down, well, at least for me, like I can sit down, write a song from beginning to end, record it, and there's like this instant gratification of I just did this thing. With the story, at least the way I started writing, it was super hard because I had this idea that I had to write the thing from beginning to end. And you can't write like 20 pages from beginning to end in one sitting. At least I can't. I'm sure there's people that can, but I can't do that. So it was really hard for me at first because I felt like I had to do that. And every time like write to a place that I liked, and then I would have to come back to that exact moment. And it was hard for me to get back into that moment. So I actually tried and failed to write three other stories or two other stories before I wrote the one that ended up in the book. It was something Medea Korafor said. She's this amazing Nigerian-American sci-fi author that we love. Mm -hmm. She used to be really transparent with her process on Twitter. And she said she doesn't think linear, so she doesn't write in a linear way. When I saw that, it, like, freed me from this idea of having to write something from beginning to end. So I started writing things in scenes the same way I would a song, and I wouldn't write in order. For the story in Octavius Blue, for example, like, I wrote the beginning first. I actually wrote the first paragraph first, and I didn't know what the story was about yet. And then I wrote something in the end and then something in the middle. And in editing, I actually put it in order. And that's actually still how I write to this day. <laughs> Gabriel's music is, I think, not only amazing, but is also something that has kept my heart whole and hopeful for, like, way over a decade. And that was really when Adrian and I thought of this idea and we said we really want to show the connections between science fiction and social change and community organizing and really showing that not only can they coexist, but they need one another, that we need imaginative spaces like science fiction to be able to imagine something other than this. And also that science fiction needs these visionary, responsive voices and to really think about what are we leaving as folks engaged in science fiction. So when we sat down to make the list we came up with, the vast majority of folks had never written fiction, let alone science fiction. You have a few more well-known folks, but most folks hadn't. And we really said the criteria was, who do we think of as doing visionary work who inspires us and who makes us hopeful and helps us to see new futures? And who do we know is a good writer, even if it's not this genre? You know, writing is writing, and you can learn the techniques of different genres. That was the impetus for the folks that we reached out to. And most people were like, uh, I don't know if I can do this. And we're like, we know you can do it. You're going to be amazing. And the entire editing process took five years, and there are many reasons. But some of that was folks are taking time to kind of engage with this and conceptualize it. Gabriel creating an entire album and tour and app as well. <laughs> like this amazing tech <laughs> multimedia experience. That's incredible too. And I feel I I always play Copper Wire when I'm doing events for Octavia's Brood. So it's amazing to see the ways that these ideas are incorporated into different genres. And that's one of the things that's been amazing. I mean, we have filmmakers, we have visual artists, we have hip-hop artists and musicians. And to see the ways folks are engaging with the intersections of science fiction and social change in these different genres continually amazes and inspires me. It's amazing to witness just here and there 
people I come in contact with or see even on the subway train people carrying the book or talking about the effect that Octavius Brood has had on their work and their lives. It's really, really cool. I was wondering to kind of connect it with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Law can be very strict and hierarchical and move forward in kind of a, a linear way. But I'm wondering, is there any way that you could see visionary fiction or science fiction interacting with social justice legal organization like Center for Constitutional Rights? Absolutely. I mean, I've done a couple of podcasts that are kind of looking at tech in the future, and one was actually about the colonization of Mars, and I was talking about what kind of criminal legal systems would happen in Mars, and some folks basically just wanting to create some, like, space police. And I was like, um, no, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I think having a visionary lens is really important thinking ahead and thinking about what are we doing that's not just about the next year or the next five years or ten years. What are we doing in the next hundred years or two hundred years? Because I think that oftentimes, especially things like legality, it's very easy to get caught just so focused on all of the moving parts that it's hard to see the larger framework. And I think it's really important to step back. Slavery was a law in this country, and folks dealt with the minutia of slavery as a law. There were disputes about, well, how do we apply this in this case? And lawyers were arguing for or against, but they were arguing under the law of slavery, whether they were trying to make it better, uphold the status quo, or make it worse, they were still legitimizing the existence of slavery. And I think, obviously, hundreds of years into the future, we reject the entire basis of legality for slavery, right? Like, it doesn't matter what arguments you are having, because the foundation of slavery is unjust. So I think it is important to have that kind of long-term vision so that as we are engaging and arguing legally, which we have to do, we are keeping in mind, are we only arguing within the parameters of what's given to us? Are we only arguing about the ways to make a kinder, gentler slavery, the ways to soften atrocity? Or are we saying, what are the ways we can utilize the law to ultimately fundamentally change it and eliminate unjust systems. I also think, like, time moves in cycles, right? So looking to the future, but also learning from the past, and along Mm -hmm. with slavery being legal, like, the Holocaust was legal somewhere. Like, there's a million atrocities that you could look at throughout history, throughout the world, that were legal at one point that needed to change, and then realizing that history rhymes if it doesn't repeat. So what are things that are happening Mm -hmm. right now that shouldn't? that we shouldn't just put up with because they're legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that's so useful about science fiction is it, it is a genre that has no boundaries built into it, which, you know, Octavia E. Butler, who collection is named in honor of, said that. She said that there's no borders in science fiction. We can build walls there, but they're not there naturally. It is a space where we can imagine anything is possible. And so I think that that space is really important because... It allows us to create scenarios where folks can imagine something different. Okay, so you can't imagine a world without borders here, but all right, now we're in a galaxy far, far away, and there's this random planet, and they don't have borders. How do they engage with one another? What happens there? And folks are like, oh, I don't know. Well, 
that's cool. Maybe they could trade. Would they form smaller communities? You know, like they'll be there. They'll go there. They'll start sharing ideas and going back and forth. But if you say, what if we eliminated borders tomorrow? Like folks are going to be like, okay, all right. All right, weirdo, get out of here, (laughs) you know? So it creates enough emotional and intellectual distance from reality that we can actually begin to imagine anything is possible. And I think that's a really important and useful space to offer folks everywhere. Because then you also see these systems that we assume have to exist. Maybe they don't have to exist. And if they don't have to exist, then what else is possible? I realize that I haven't mentioned who uh, Octavius Brood is named after. And I wondered if you each could briefly talk about the importance of the author, Octavia Butler, Man, Octavia E. Butler was, man, she's like the matriarch of black science fiction authors. Like Samuel Delaney were like the two black folks that were writing speculative fiction in a time when nobody else was really doing it. And she's somebody who I feel like all of us in the speculative fiction world, like we stand on their shoulders. Her work is jarring. It's inspiring. It's some of my favorite stuff ever written just it just means so much octavia butler passed away 2006 here in seattle and i'm just tripping out because yesterday i was in her neighborhood again like at the bookstore she Mm -hmm. used to walk to much of the principles that i've learned of visionary fiction of what i call visionary fiction of saying how do we create writing that can help us to imagine new different worlds first saw in play in, in octavia e butler's writing for me, it's the fact that she always centers folks who are marginalized. All of her main characters are black women. She was very proud of that fact, and she was very unapologetic about it. Fundamentally, whose eyes we see through can completely change the story for us. The piece is truly visionary, is recognizing that if we actually are truly and authentically centering marginalized people and oppressed people, then how we deal with power has to change. And I think Octavia did such an incredible job of exploring the immense nuances, contradictions, complexities of that question of saying, first making visible hierarchical, institutional, systemic power and naming it very clearly, and then saying, how do we change this? Like, how do we engage with power? And then how do we imagine when we achieve the semblance of freedom or some more space of autonomy that we've been dreaming about, how are we going to engage with power amongst ourselves? How are we not going to replicate the same systems of oppression that we have been working to fight against? And basically, like, who do we have to be and how do we have to change, not just, you know, as individual characters, but as humanity to be able to engage with power differently? And I think those questions, to me, are what is so valuable in helping to create new just futures, because it's not just about fighting against oppressive systems, like Gabriel was saying, can't just be anti-anti. We have to say, what are we for? And we have to recognize we have been socialized by these same systems to replicate them. So we have to have some really deep, meaningful, engaged, difficult painful conversations about how do we do different. And I think having someone's work like Octavia E. Butler creates such an amazing opportunity to 
think about and reflect and explore that and then to think about how can that be useful in our lives and in our work. If there was a piece of her writing that each of you might recommend to someone who hasn't read any of her work before, what would that be? Mm -hmm. All of it is so brilliant. For me, my favorite is still Parable of the Sower. Without giving away too much of the story, it's about a near-apocalyptic scenario with a president who has a tagline, Make America Great Again. And this was written in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, 96, she wrote that for Parable of the Talents. Okay, that was in Parable of the Talents, in the sequel, my bad. Well, Parable of the Sower is is part one of those two books, and the main protagonist of the story is younger, black teenage girl, I want to say, who has a go pack and she invents her own religion called Earthseed and it's terrifying, it's inspiring, it's beautiful and it's one of my favorite books ever written by anybody. That's the mm-hmm. one I recommend. I think a lot of people start with Parable of the Sower and I think it's a good entry point. I think especially if folks aren't into don't think they're into science fiction because really it's this world a little bit worse. <laughs> Sadly, the little bit keeps getting smaller and smaller every day. It's not set in space with giant robot mecha machines or something. It's just basically like, hey, society is really collapsing. The environment is collapsing. Like, people are struggling to survive. And within that, how do we do more than just survive? How do we actually thrive and grow more towards what we want to be? Yeah, I agree that I think Parable of the Sower, but it is super intense. Like, it's super, it's super intense. intense. Yeah. So intense. I feel like it's even more intense to read it now. Like, I think Adrian was part of, like, an online reading group of Parable of the Sower, and I got invited, and I was like, y'all, I can't read that right now. It's too real. It's too real. Wow. I can't. Yeah. I feel like we're living it. So I would also say Wild Seed is a great place to start yes. as well about power, it's about longing. There's this incredibly long-lived entity, and he's incredibly lonely because he loses everyone, and he finally finds someone who he thinks could match him, that could be an equal, but he has no idea how to share power space and so tries to dominate her and control her and own her, and she's a black woman. And so there's so much in that as well around gender and sexuality. And I think Octavia continually presents them with two limited options, right, that are both pretty terrible. And the characters reject them and always find a different path. And I think that's one of the things that I find so inspiring about her work as well, is the rejection that we have to take one of the crappy options offered to us by systemic power. Instead saying, no, we can make a different option and won't be perfect, but it will be the one that actually has the chance of getting us to where we want to be. Thank you for all that. I want to switch and topic for a second and talk about something else you guys mentioned, which is your mutual love of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's a very specific, I think, Star <laughs> Trek in the Star <laughs> Trek universe, which I'm not sure Indeed. if all of our listeners are Trekkies or serious Trekkies. However... Uh-huh. One member of the podcast editorial team, Charles, is a Trekkie, and he had this question. Uh, He wants to ask, Star Trek has had a profound effect on imagining a technological future that we take for granted today through advances such as smartphones, iPads, and medical scanners. 
Dark Facts also envisioned a future where Earth eradicated hunger, poverty, income disparity, racism, and so on. How do you see visionary fiction setting the foundation for a better world tomorrow? Good question. Each series is very different, and I think they're obviously not just a connection via storyline and world building, but defining characteristics, principles, and values throughout the different Star Treks that people are really drawn to. I think the idea of the hope for the future, the hopefulness, unlike Star Wars where we're battling the evil empire, Star Trek we've moved past that and we've moved into the utopian dream afterwards. That is something that certainly has drawn me. I think, obviously, whenever you talk about utopia, you have to ask who created this utopia, whose dream is this, because that will influence what the dream is. And so we can very much see from the original series that this was an idea sort of rooted in white liberal visions of the future um, where race no longer matters, but whiteness is still central. And I think one of the things about Deep Space Nine, the many, many things that's amazing, is not just that it focuses on a black captain who is an incredible father to his amazing, black, beautiful, brilliant son. The relationship is incredible, you guys. I mean, Avery Brooks, who played Captain Sisko insisted on a cultural context for his character. He was like, you're not just going to put me out in space as a black man and be like, oh, it's fine. Race doesn't matter. He's like, no, I want African art on my wall. I want Mm -hmm. to be immersed in, like, black historical culture, and we are going to engage with race in the episodes that happen. And I think... Deep Space Nine asks incredibly complicated questions. I think it's the most complicated out of any Star Trek series, and it doesn't offer easy answers. And I think that's the piece that is most helpful and useful. Yeah, and I'm kind of critical of most of the Star Trek universe, even though I grew up on it, and they're some of my favorite shows. There is this near utopia where capitalism doesn't seem to come up with federation, and racism is eliminated, supposedly, in the Star Trek universe. But everything is still so militaristic, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? There doesn't seem to be much imagination in Star Trek outside of that until you get to Deep Space Nine. Whereas the Federation is not necessarily the good guys in Deep Space Nine at all. It just complicates the whole Star Trek universe, which to me is more real. Most of the Star Treks center around the militaristic arm, as Gabriel said, Starfleet. They colonize new worlds. That's part of the mission. It's not just to boldly go and explore new worlds, but to colonize them, to terraform them, to make them acceptable for human use and other folks in the Federation, which is very human-centric. It makes all of these assumptions about, like, colonization as a positive, right? Of course, a future society that is a utopia will continually be expanding and exploring more and, like, spreading the seed of humanity farther and farther without questioning, like, what does that actually mean and what does that look like on the other end? And in Deep Space Nine, it is centered around a planet, Bajor, that has just survived 50 years of occupation by the Cardassians. Not the Cardassians, which everyone's like the Cardassians, and I'm like, damn it, no, the Cardassians. I've never heard anyone <laughs> say that about the Cardassians. Oh, my God, <laughs> everyone hilarious. says that to me when I tell them that. Wow. It's, oh, I've never heard that oh my. 
funny. <laughs> I never heard that one. I'm like, maybe it's who I'm hanging out with. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the Kardashians are this oppressive militaristic empire who colonized, exploited Bajor for 50 years, and Bajor won its independence through armed struggle and resistance, and they've just right. kicked out the Kardashians and asked the Federation to come as sort of an outside mediator to make sure yeah. that the Kardashians don't try and come and recolonize. That's where we start, right? And we start centered in Bajor, centered, you know, the second in command is a Bajoran resistance fighter that, yeah. you know, it starts off deeply critical of the ideas of colonization. It starts off yeah. with colonizers portrayed in these horrendous ways. And throughout, yeah. there are questions that have to be answered by Starfleet about their role in colonization and yeah. are they actually different from the Cardassians and what different decisions have to be made to actually be different from the Cardassians by more than just degrees. The fact that it's fundamentally questioning something that was viewed as a integral part of the creation of this sort of perfect utopian future, I think shows the ways that Deep Space Nine operates within the Star Trek multiverse. Church. For <laughs> 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 so me growing up and seeing Deep Space Nine when it was like first coming on TV, the relationship between Cisco and his son was mm -hmm. the very first images I ever saw in mainstream media of a healthy single black father raising a black mm -hmm. son. I had never seen it in mainstream media anywhere else. And seeing that when I was younger, it broke me down so many times. Like there's mm -hmm. certain episodes between those two that still mm -hmm. make me cry to this day. It is a powerful show. Well, Lita, in past interviews, you said that you're always dreaming of a multiplicity of worlds. What kind of worlds are each of you dreaming or imagining right now in, in your work or your art? For me, it's more like a practice than a set dream. And I think that's a gift that I've really been given by Octavia's Brood and being able to dig so deeply with the idea and especially with the writers to really see how these stories changed and evolved for them. I mean, Adrian and I, as we were going through the editing process, which was incredibly collaborative and the the writers were so generous with their time and with their energy and with their creation to allow us to kind of go back and forth with them. We would try and point out places where we felt like there could be more exploration or something could shift. And we would always offer an example of like, oh, maybe this could happen. And I would say like 95% of the time people did not take our suggestion. And they came up with something a billion times more ingenious and creative and incredible. It was really just that idea of saying like, oh, just focus here for a minute. And folks are like, oh, just here? Boom. Okay, I've got like 10 ideas. Which one? Like the creativity blossomed in all of these different directions. I just feel like from the actual editing process to just really immersing in this idea of growing more possibilities, as Adrian says, it's something I try to practice to really integrate into my personal life, into my organizing life, there's always at least one more option. There's always a multiplicity of other options. We live in a quantum universe. The, the possibilities are endless. The way systems of power maintain themselves is to deny us that and to tell us 
there's only one or two terrible options. And so to really root in the practice of holding a multiplicity of worlds, of saying that's not true and I have to keep reminding myself because the system will attempt to keep recolonizing us and telling us that's true, to keep reminding it's not true. This can happen and this can happen and this can happen and that could happen in this and that could branch off in that. And again, we have a quantum universe. We need to create quantum movements and we need to recognize that we are quantum beings and that part of capitalism's ability to commodify us and our time and our lives is to lock us into one space, but that's not how we naturally are. I feel like the one thing that ties together everything that I do in life is that it's connected to storytelling, bringing people together, building community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and collective movements to shift culture, right? So my DJing mm-hmm. work intersects with that. The writing definitely intersects with that. And I think the thing that's been inspiring me the most lately is the work that I've been doing with music. There's a studio that I work out of that a whole crew of South End artists all record out of, and we help each other with different releases. And the main thing I've been thinking about and trying to put energy towards is a different way to approach the record industry in a way it's like that's collective, that empowers everyone involved, where we can hold each other up as artists and community members but we don't need the major corporations to, like, back us to help our stories get to the next level or whatever. So mm-hmm. that's kind of been the main thing I've been putting my energy into lately. Just for people who don't know, when you refer to South End artists, where you're talking about? I mean South Seattle. There's one part of Seattle that's historically been forgotten about, marginalized. It's largely, like, black and immigrant communities. People from all over the world live here. There's not a lot of resources for youth to like get their voices heard out here trying to build a a collective that's different Mm -hmm. than a record label that's different than a crew that's that's Mm -hmm. literally something we haven't seen before amazing a lot of the audience that listens to the activist files are other you know legal folks and activists and organizers and is there anything i think especially in the kind of legal social justice world that you would want to to speak on or speak to Keep going, keep fighting, (laughs) keep dreaming. Especially around legal stuff, because I do work around transformative justice and alternatives to incarceration. Rooting in that idea of harm as separate from a crime, as separate from legality, um, and thinking about how then can laws be used to actually serve justice. Right, because so many of the things that are crimes, you know, are about criminalizing people's very existence, but laws have always been weaponized against oppressed peoples. And also that the vast majority of harm that's being done to individuals, communities in the world is not illegal. The folks who are destroying the planet who are going to take us all down with them unless they leave us in their spaceships and go to Mars and then we just go and die here. None of that is illegal, what they're doing. They have utilized laws incredibly effectively to ensure that. I think, as Adrian always says, we need to practice yes and, not no but, because there's not one right way to get free. Every successful movement for social justice has had a multiplicity of ways. Folks working around the legal area, really hugely important way. But I think to always keep that bigger picture and frame and to make sure that you can see the forest 
through the trees because part of the ways the legal system has been constructed is to make us see nothing but the trees and to forget about the forest and more importantly to forget there's anything outside of the forest. I'm incredibly thankful to to folks who are doing this work like CCR and like Ian and just amazing folks who are doing this legal work with an eye to these liberated futures of saying this is something to help us get to freedom. How can we engage with it on that level without ever losing our focus on freedom. Thank you guys so much for making the time. Last thing I'd just ask is if there's places where people can check out your art, music, writing, Copper Wire, if we want to start there. Everything <laughs> is linked, including Copper Wire, through my website, GabrielTeodros.com. Mm-hmm. All my projects are there. My writing is there, too. There's a funny picture of me and Walida right there on the homepage. <laughs> <laughs> And Gabriel's newest album is Healing Salve. I've been listening to it just on repeat. Is something that helps, is helping to like hold my heart in these times. So everyone should. Call History Rhymes if it doesn't repeat a South End healing ritual. My website is just myfirstname.com, walida.com. And then there are links to different books and projects I am working on or have worked on. Probably should mention that you recently won the Oregon Book Award or an amazing book called Angels with Dirty Faces. Yes. Is that the full title, or is there a longer title that I'm forgetting? Will you... It's a nonfiction book about the criminal legal system called Angels with Dirty Faces, Three Stories of Crime, Prison, and Redemption. It's such an important book. I cannot recommend that book harder. Everyone should read it, especially if you're in the legal world. It shows all the complicatedness of what's wrong with the prison system, and it's just so beautifully written. Like y'all should read that book for real. Thanks so much guys. I really appreciate it. And now a roundup of some of the headlines here at CCR. A panel appointed by the New York City Police Commissioner to review disciplinary procedures found what police reform advocates have been saying for years. The NYPD's disciplinary system is a black box. That lack of transparency makes it impossible to know whether civilian complaints against officers are reviewed and resolved fairly. Incorporating some of the panel's findings, on February 7th, Center for Constitutional Rights Advocacy Program Manager Nahal Zamani testified at a New York City Council hearing on a suite of bills aimed at increasing transparency over the NYPD disciplinary process. You can watch the video of her testimony on our Facebook page. Our clients scored an incredible victory recently in our class action solitary confinement case in California called Ashker v. Governor of California. A federal judge found that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR, is violating the Constitution by repeatedly relying on unreliable and even fabricated confidential information to send California prisoners to solitary confinement. The court also found CDCR is using constitutionally flawed gang validations to deny people in prison a fair opportunity for parole. As a result, the court granted a one-year extension on the settlement agreement we reached in the case. We will be able to continue to monitor California's process to ensure it moves forward according to the terms of the agreement and continue our fight against solitary confinement. We had another important win in our Palestine solidarity work this month. On February 4th, a federal court dismissed a lawsuit against the American Studies Association, Dr. Stephen Salida, and others over the association's resolution endorsing the call to boycott Israeli academic institutions. 
We represented Dr. Slyden in the case. The dismissal is a victory for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS, in support of Palestinian freedom. Every win for BDS is important because of the broader implications for freedom of speech and the movement for Palestinian human rights. The Real AF. The Real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say The Real AF. The Real AF. Welcome to The Real AF. This is Ian. I'm here with Leah Todd. Hello. This episode, we're here with Jen Nessel from the Communications Department. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for making the time. We're going to ask you a few important questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Would you rather take someone visiting New York to Queens or the Bronx? Queens. Definitely, when I take people around in New York, it's always about the food. Just do like a food tasting tour? Totally. That's the only reason I live in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather hang out with Batman or Captain America? Oh, really? Okay, do I have to? Because One or the other. One is just such a dark, sort of vigilante asshole. Sorry. And the other is this jingoistic World War II caricature. So I have to choose one. You gotta choose one. Batman, because I don't know. He's in New York, and that would be convenient. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather have a bit role in Casablanca or The Godfather? Casablanca. I love that movie. What scene or what part would you want to be in? Oh, I'd want to be one of the people standing up and singing the Marseillaise and, you know, protest. Awesome. Would you rather have free Wi-Fi wherever you go or free coffee when or wherever you want? I'll give the good CCR answer, which is it depends if the Wi-Fi is secure. Boom. Thank you. (laughs) Wow. The snobby answer is depends how good the coffee is. Would you rather win the lottery or live twice as long? Twice as long as what? I know, that was my first question. <laughs> what's what's going to be there at the end, right? Will there be civilization? Will there be society? Right? Will there be an, an but, environment, an economy? Know, if if my, it's my fate to die tomorrow, then yeah, I'd like to live twice as long. Mm-hmm. But my grandmother just passed away at 102, and I wouldn't want to live twice as long as that. Okay. Would you rather be a great dancer or a great singer? I used to watch Fame, the TV show, when I was a kid, and it moved me so much, just that pure expression that they could do when they danced, but also when they sang. At this point, I'd rather be able to belt it out and be an extraordinary singer. So you could sing the Marseillaise? Exactly. Would you rather write a book or have a book written about you? Write a book, or I should say write another book. Another book, because you already have written a book. I have written a book. Which was called? It was called Goodnight Nanny Cam, a parody for modern parents. And referencing Goodnight Moon? Yes, of course. I co-wrote it. My co-author is Lizzie Ratner. Would you rather have front row tickets to Prince or Jimi Hendrix? Prince. Prince is the one concert I really regret missing. 
Prince, I, I don't think there's anything to match that kind of performance. Prince is not half bad to look at either. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I was Someone a little disagree. kid when Prince was on the MTV Awards. He wore the suit where he turned around. Oh, with the butt cheeks. With the butt cheeks. The yellow the spandex. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I wouldn't mind looking at the backside. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>